electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange in Progress. Welcome to The Exchange, by the way, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans. We appreciate you standing by. The 10-year, the markets, we're keeping an eye on everything. We've actually seen things dip a little bit towards session lows, but we'll circle back to that in just a moment. First, let's get some reaction from our panel. Standing by, we have CNBC's D.C. correspondent Emily Wilkins to react to the president's speech. Bleakley Financial Group's Peter Bookvar is here on set with me. We also welcome PIMCO's head of public policy, Libby Cantrell. All right, everybody, Emily, I'll send it to you first. What was the significance you heard here? Well, the difficult thing here for Biden, you are often told show, don't tell. But the fact of the matter is that most of Biden's big policy wins over the last couple of years, he can't show them yet. This stuff takes time to be implemented. You got to go through the permits. You got to get the construction. Most Americans, they're not aware of what Biden has done in the last couple of years. They don't know how it impacts them. And so that's really the key for this speech is to get out there to tell Americans what he's done to take credit for the stronger labor market that we're seeing, and then also kind of say that he's going to continue pushing for priorities, a tax on the wealthy, a getting rid of hidden fees, things that we know are pretty popular with the majority of Americans. And that's really what Biden has to do with this message, is kind of say to Americans, hey, you might not have noticed yet that the roads in your town are fixed, but you need to know that we have done the investment and that good things are coming. And Libby, maybe there's three significant things that we can emphasize here, along with everything else that jumps out to you. But number one, we have massive, I shouldn't say massive, we have a lot of fiscal stimulus coming at a time when the Fed is trying to tighten. As he said, he said, we've done infrastructure decade, forget infrastructure week, and we have seen a massive construction spending boom. So that has been an area of significance. Also today, of course, we've had these reports in the Wall Street Journal about a further clampdown on some of NVIDIA and the other AI chips heading for China. Didn't get that detail in this speech, although he did mention chips a couple of times. Yeah, that's right. I mean, this is obviously a sales pitch for what he has done to Emily's point, trying to educate voters about the intricacies of really his big three legislative achievements, the CHIPS bill, the Inflation Reduction Act, and then the infrastructure bill, which, as Emily points out, really won't start hitting the economy until kind of 2024, 2025. So he's trying to sort of preview all of those and then also put forth his vision. Now, you know, I, I don't think that Kelly, his vision today really sounds all that different from his vision in 2020. It just maybe he has some more data uh, to, to support it um, in terms of the, the low unemployment, um, softening inflation, which is uh, you know, risk because, of course, inflation has been stickier. But I think broadly, it's interesting that he is absolutely embracing, you know, Bidenomics here. He's embracing uh, the economic scorecard, so to speak. Uh, and if the economy looks like it does today on the election eve, that will bode well for him. However, there's a real risk, right, because we still are a year plus uh, in advance of the of the election. And if the economy does slow, which many folks uh, think it will, especially going into the end of this year and uh, beginning of next year, it could be a risk for him that he is bit sort of so, so doubled down on the economic track record. But I think all of the themes that we have heard today, we will hear uh, you know, very much so for the next 15 months. 
Peter, what's most market moving right now? Is it what the administration ultimately does with regards to AI chips? NVIDIA has been under pressure today, obviously, although not even that much, uh, half a percent lower at last check. What's the most market moving kind of significance here? Well, this the money is now being is beginning to be put to work. And you see construction and manufacturing facilities that are hanging in there and the infrastructure spending that's now just beginning to show up. Uh, to Libby's point about seeing the impact in 2024, 2025, we'll also see it, it'll become more difficult for Jay Powell to contain inflation. The 20 years leading into COVID, core goods prices average zero. Hmm. With a lot of this reshoring and spending on doing things here, that's not going to happen. Inflation is going to bottom out at maybe three to four instead of one to two with a lot of it because of this good spending, which means that interest rates are going to stay higher for a while and make central banks job more difficult getting it back to two percent. Now, that's will take a couple of years, but that's what keeps inflation higher for longer. Sure. Higher goods prices from all of this, just the continued fiscal s- stimulus, you could call it at a time when the Fed is pulling back. So. I guess the question is, does does the Fed end up still pushing against these developments and trying to get inflation lower and ultimately maybe, you know, more slowing the economy than it would need to or really want to otherwise as a result? Well, that's the big question is what sort of tolerance does the Fed have for economic slowing for a slow economic slowdown while they're still dealing with inflation? What unemployment rate will get them to blink off this fight? We don't know yet. Jay doesn't know yet. We're going to have to see. But we're going to reach that. They're going to reach that fork in the road where the unemployment rate is higher and inflation is not getting back to 2%. And they're going to have to make some choices. All right. Emily, before we let you go, what's next in terms of uh, policy initiatives from this White House? Should we wait to see more clarity on what else they might do on the chips front and what else is in the air right now? Well, I think one of the things that Biden touched on that we do know that there is bipartisan support for is that elimination of hidden fees. Now, exactly how that gets done, that's not quite clear at the time. Uh, Congress obviously just got done with the debt limit, and now they're going to have to focus on getting the government funded. That will take a lot of oxygen out of the room in D.C., and that means that some of these other priorities that Biden wants to see, I mean, certainly a tax on the wealthy is probably not going to be done with Republicans controlling the House, Uh, but something maybe like hidden fees, perhaps that could go in that wider year-end spending bill. Um, They do have some more time to get these things done, but it's really not a lot before we're going to see 2024 kick into high gear and everyone really focused on the campaign trail. Libby, maybe the way I'll ask this then is, should we consider all of these basically a a campaign type wish list of, I mean, because he he obviously can do significant things like what Emily's mentioning and look at what we've seen from the infrastructure, from the bills that have already passed. But from here on out, what, what are your expectations? Yeah, I mean, as you know, with a split Congress, um, really any sort of hope for real, I think, economy moving uh, legislation should be pretty dim. We could see something on, you know, maybe crypto regulation. We could maybe see something on energy permitting. Uh, that's sort of if the stars align. But I think the the threshold for anything, anything from Congress is going to be quite high. Um, but as Emily pointed out, there are some things he can do administratively. And you refer to you know, these export controls, which is going to be a continued focus of this administration. And regardless of who's in the White House in 2025, I mean, we think that the direction of travel here as it relates to the U.S.-China um, in terms of protecting our intellectual property uh, and our innovation around semiconductors and other technologies um, is here to stay. So we will hear more of that. And Kelly, that has the added benefit of playing well with voters. Uh, Mm -hmm. There is 
high skepticism among the U.S. electorate. So it sort of achieves kind of two, you know, two objectives for this administration. Yeah, and plenty of states who are feeling, you know, seeing massive construction projects as a result of these. Uh, that's that, that's going to last. That memory is going to last. Well, thank you all. We appreciate it. Uh, Emily and Libby. Peter, stick around. We're not done with you yet. Meanwhile, the ECB's annual monetary com- policy conference just finished up in Sintra, Portugal today. And with quite a finale, our own Sarah Eisen hosted the panel featuring Christine Lagarde, Jay Powell, Andrew Bailey of the Bank of England, and Bank of Japan Governor Kazuo Ueda. Sarah joins us now from Portugal with some of those highlights. And there were, Sarah, this was fun, I have to say, um, and, and revealing. Uh, it was fun for me too, Kelly. Not every day you get four of the top central bankers in the world in conversation together, which I think you got some glimpses of personality there as well. But as far as the message to investors, quite clear from the Fed, the ECB, and the Bank of England, at least, and that is higher rates for longer. Fed Chair Powell making clear, as he has, but I think even more forcefully today, that inflation isn't coming down fast enough and that services sector inflation is going to take time. And here's what he said about what that means for the policy path for interest rates. If you look at the the data over the last quarter, what you see is stronger than expected growth, uh, a tighter than expected labor market, and higher than expected inflation. So that tells us that although policy is restrictive, it may not be restrictive enough, and and it has not been restrictive for long enough. Pretty clear there on the path being more restrictive and for a longer amount of time. I asked him, so if a majority of, of Fed members and with that view think that there's more to do, why did you then pause in June? He said, well, we're just trying to slow things down and get a sense of how the policy is working, but then said that he would not rule out consecutive interest rate hikes, i.e. July and potentially September, when I asked if he was comfortable with every other uh, meeting doing an interest rate hike. Translation, Kelly. I thought he was pretty hawkish, and, yeah. and there were other ways he said it as well. He said that the recession is not his base case scenario and doesn't look very likely, although we could see a downturn. He said he didn't think fiscal and fiscal policy was having a big impact on inflation in the economy either. He sees it in construction, but not necessarily overall inflation. I think the markets are catching up with that point of view. You know, we were kind of down, then we came up a little bit. Dow's went down 135, though, and, and often we see a little bit of a delayed reaction. I thought the comments from Bank of England Governor Andrew Bailey were quite striking as well. I mean, he's been under a lot of pressure because inflation in the U.K. has been much higher than expected. But as you asked me, there are ramifications from what's going on with Russia and Ukraine, and that could keep prices uncomfortably high. And, you know, is that something they should respond to policy-wise? Yeah, I thought it was interesting when he talked about food inflation, said I talked to a lot of businesses and food producers in particular, and that they're high because of the, the supply shortages and the material disruptions that's been happening as a result of the war in Ukraine. So I said, but you can't do anything about that as a central banker, right? And he said, well, it's, it's important to know that. When it comes to the, the double hike, which was a surprise, 50 basis points two weeks ago, this was his first time really talking about it because he didn't give a presser that day. So here's why he says it was justified to go bigger. The UK economy has turned out uh, to be much more resilient, and that's a good thing. I mean, there's many good aspects to that. But what goes with that resilience is signs of uh, a very tight labour market, which is, which is showing through in, in pay, uh, pay awards, uh, but also showing through, I mean, we've got a, we have an unemployment rate of 3.8%, which is historically right at the low end. So that resilience is coming through that way. But when we looked at the, again, to Christine's point, when we looked at the data, because we too are being driven by evidence at the moment, 
the cumulative data, both particularly on the labour market and on the, inf the inflation release we had, which to us showed clear signs of persistence, uh, caused us to conclude that we had to make really quite a strong move at that point. It, it, it was justified. They are dealing with higher inflation than, than even Europe. They're in the 8% range, 8.6% was the surprise inflation read that they've just had. Europe, at least a CPI headline, is 6%. U.S. CPI headline, we're down to 4%. But, of course, central bankers are looking at the core, which remains sticky, stubbornly high, and they're trying to target that. And, of course, Kelly, I asked, is that because of Brexit? Is that why yours is higher? And right. he downplayed that and said, no, it's the tight labor market. No, but it was absolutely the right question. Peter, I don't know about you, but I thought the star of the show might have been Weta. Well, that was very, <laughs> what was so interesting is you had three of the four, to Sarah's point, reiterated that higher for longer is their theme, where Weta was like, well, lower for longer is mine. Right. Why is that? It, it's a good question because he was talking about inflation, core inflation or, or below headline inflation being below their trend, even though that core, core, ex food and energy, is running at four. Mm -hmm. So I think he's reaching a point where he's going to have to make a move at some point. Uh, but as, as he said during the interview, you know, 25 years of, of, of lagging monetary policy, I guess he doesn't feel like yet his hand is forced. Right. But also Sarah talked about the weakening yen and how they will do that. I think you can be sure if the yen breaks 145, 150, mm -hmm. uh, there's going to be even more extreme pressure on him to widen yield curve control and maybe get out of negative rates. Quick last words, Sarah. I thought he was quite personable and funny. I thought it was funny. I, he got the biggest laughs and applause and even roaring laughter from the crowd, which you don't have, often expect from <laughs> central bankers. Um, he made a joke about the 25-year policy lag. Uh, also made a joke about going all in on paper money, which is funny if you know the Bank of Japan policy versus the digital currencies um, from, from Europe and the UK. But the bottom line is that they have been waiting so long for inflation, and he still characterizes underlying inflation as below 2%. And continuing to be so for this year, maybe sees it getting to 2% next year, doesn't have a lot of confidence in that, in that forecast, but maybe that would cause him to rethink. That was as close as I got, the, uh, the easy money policy. It's true. And you wonder, at the end of the day, is he going to have to catch up with the rest of the central bankers, or are they going to catch down to him? Like, I still, I still wonder a little bit which way this is going to go. Sarah, great stuff. Thanks for sticking around. We really appreciate Thank it. Thank you. Sarah Eisen in Portugal. Coming up, Korean barbecue chain Gen Restaurant Group popping in its public debut. Is the IPO drought officially over? We'll look at some other names that are on deck. And as we head to break, here's a look at the markets. Dow's down 100 S&P down a quarter percent. NASDAQ has lost its gains. It's only up four. And the Russells, hey, there you go. They're up two tenths, 371 on the 10-year after that seven-year auction. We're back after this. How about Captain Crunch's Crunch Berries with breakfast? Whoa, Dad, we're on. Crunch Island. <gasps> it's Jean foot. <laughs> and he stole our crunch. Quick, the zip line. He's getting away! Throw our last Crunchberry! No! No one steals my Crunchberries. I think you mean my Crunchberries. Choose your own Crunch Venture with Tapping Crunch. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, 
a leading global asset manager. Welcome back. The Korean barbecue chain Gen Restaurant Group is actually surging in its public debut. Shares priced at 12 last night, opened at 18.30 and almost hit 20 bucks. Uh, you can see them. I think that's the price. Is that about $15 right now? Relatively small deal, raising $43 million, but it's not the only IPO we're watching this week. Let's get down to Bob Bassani at the New York Stock Exchange. Hi, Bob. Two things about uh, Gen Restaurant Group. First, it's an upsized deal. That's very important here. Uh, they increased the price and they increased the size of it. They raised $43 million instead of $33 million. Okay, it's a small deal, but that's a significant upsize. And second, even upsize, it opens at $18, 50% higher. That's pretty impressive. It's not because the deal was mispriced, I don't think. It's because this is continuing demand for IPOs, for new stock that's out there. This is a good follow-on to Kava last week. Remember what happened? Kava priced at $22, opened at $42. And look here, it's still at $42. That's remarkable because normally you get a first-day big pop, and then in the following weeks it usually trades down. Now it's still holding up. That's a good sign for the IPO market. Three big deals tomorrow. We've talked about it uh, all week. First, we're going to have Fidelis Insurance. It's all trading down here at the New York Stock Exchange. Uh, all about $300 million uh, deals here. This is a big property reinsurance and catastrophe insurance company. Uh, Kodiak Gas Services does uh, natural gas uh, compression here, uh, compressing natural gas into liquefied natural gas. And Savers Value Village, this is the, the largest for-profit thrift operator in the United States. I read a story this morning about Savers Value Village, very interesting company here. They're going to go uh, public tomorrow, and the important thing is they're profitable. Uh, thrift is very cool, uh, and the eco angle is very strong here, Kelly. These uh, you hear about food waste all the time. Bottom line is they talk about clothing waste. Back to you, Bob. Thank you. I appreciate it. Our Bob Bassani. Meantime, shares of Fryer, a Norwegian clean battery maker, down about four percent today, but higher for the week after the company announced some key updates, including financing for its Giga America factory at its inaugural Investor Day yesterday. Fryer committed to spending up to $2.5 billion on that facility in Georgia, and it's one of the beneficiaries of the Inflation Reduction Act. Here on set with me now is Fryer CEO Tom Jensen in an exchange exclusive. It's so great to see you. Kelly, it's a pleasure to be here. And I'm right about this being in Georgia, correct? $2.5 billion. I mean, this is a massive deal for them and for your company. A massive deal. The Inflation Reduction Act is indeed the poster child for mitigating climate uh, change. And it's also uh, efforts to really reduce energy inflation. So Inflation Reduction Act this serves many purposes. It's the largest kind of impactful act since uh, the Climate Change Treaty in Paris. Hmm. Uh, we decided to accelerate our efforts into the U.S. as a direct result of the Inflation Reduction Act. And I think that's so interesting because foreign governments have been criticizing the U.S. for these subsidies. But here's a foreign company, yours, benefiting from access to this because, hey, you're building in the U.S. Correct. So we are a Norwegian company that, you know, are building our first facility in Norway. We actually made our first batteries there using MIT technology. Wow. So we're going to take that U.S.-based technology and we're going to take it to very large scale here in the U.S. Uh, as a direct consequence of the Inflation Reduction Act. How many employees and What's the, where will your, your batteries be deployed? So, so we've committed uh, to spend more than $2.6 billion and employ at least 725 people in Georgia. That's the start. Uh, we can go higher than this. We have 400 acres of prime industrial acreage in Georgia. 
We will initially target the energy storage markets, nice. uh, which will complement solar deployments. Uh, and remember, these are technologies. And every time you double deployment of technology, you have a learning curve effect. So costs come down. How much of the, is the U.S. government contributing to this effort, either you know, implicitly or explicitly? So the production tax credits that benefit uh, battery makers such as us, which last up until 2032, with a certain trickle-down effect towards the end. So you can't say trickle-down. That president said no, tr <laughs> no trickle-down. Well, it's trending downwards towards <laughs> yeah. the end. Uh, so that's 30 to 40 percent of production cost that you get in, in direct production tax credits. Wow. Very simple, very sort of effectful and, and will impact for sure the cost of batteries. Any reason investors aren't as enthusiastic? What might they be concerned about with this? Is it maybe this project in particular or just in general? So, you know, I think battery is kind of a new industry for the Western Hemisphere. We rely a lot on Asian imports and Chinese imports in particular. But batteries need to be included absolutely everywhere in the energy transition. 75% of all decarbonization efforts will have to have batteries in them. So I think it's a matter of education and just waking up to the fact that batteries is the next oil. Could there be more to come for you in the U.S.? Absolutely. Really? Tom, thanks for joining us. Uh, Thank you. As you make this swing through the U.S., I know they appreciate this investment. Tom Jensen joining me. He is the CEO of Fryer. That does it for The Exchange, everybody. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. Jake from State Farm here, hanging out with Mel's Mow and Grow. Mel chose State Farm for small business insurance because his local agent is a small business owner, too. So she knew how to help him personalize his policies. And now he's rolling in the green. Like a, like a good neighbor? Guys, I'm trying to do the line. Oh, sorry, Jake. It's all good. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to an agent today.